1: This is Duray and welcome to Pod the People. In this episode, we are joined by Randy Weingarten, the president of the AFT, one of the biggest teachers unions in the country.
2: You're seeing the will on the part of teacher unions with allies, basically saying... Let's just try and make schools centers of community and wrap services around. And I suspect that the more we can do this, the more you're going to see over the course of the next few years, more nurses coming out of nursing schools who will then be school nurses. Like when you start it, like you did in Baltimore, it's always really hard to be first at it. But once people then start seeing that there is not only a need, there is a demand, then what's gonna happen is that we're gonna start being able to get school nurses again, which have been a huge shortage.
1: And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. This week's message is simple, so I've been going to the gym, I'm trying to get better about going to the gym, and I'm used to the gym being a place that is just hard. We're like, the workouts are hard, not particularly fun, All the people who are like, I love the gym, never understood those people. And then I started doing two things differently. One is I started to work out with a friend. So one of my good friends, we go together and that's dope. The second is that the trainer just has figured out how to make it fun. So it's still hard, it's still tough, but it was this reminder that even the stuff that stretches us, the stuff that helps us grow, the stuff that makes us stronger, the stuff that pushes us to our limits, it doesn't always have to be painful. It can be fun. It can also be easier to go through when you do it with people you love.
3: Let's go.
4: Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pack Yeti, on all social media.
3: And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sinyangwe on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint the 3rd
5: And this is Dere at DIY on Twitter.
4: So I want you all to know something. Everywhere... Marie Ivanovich went, turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Then fast forward to Ukraine, where the new Ukrainian president spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him. <laughs> it is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. They call it serving at the pleasure of the president. The U.S. now has a very strong and powerful foreign policy, much different than preceding administrations. It is called, quite simply... America first. With all of that, however, I have done far more for Ukraine than, oh, parenthetical, Bama.
5: It's like the beginning of a terrible one-man show (laughs) full of racism and sexism and xenophobia.
4: Because it is. It's called Trump's timeline and entire life and, administration. and those are, of course, the two tweets that he sent up during Marie Yovanovitch's testimony during the impeachment hearings in what seems to me and a lot of people to be a move that directly implicates him as somebody who is trying to influence his own impeachment hearings and influence the witnesses therein through threat and intimidation. Uh, I don't know how else you can possibly look at that. Of course, he and his camp say that that's not what happened, but it was, frankly, a stunning turn of events, even for this guy?
5: Yeah, I mean, part of what I think is important for folks to remember is that we are in the midst of a truly historic moment. I mean, there have been two presidents who have been impeached, I believe, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, Uh, one who would have been impeached, but he resigned before, Richard Nixon. And this is the first time in the social media era, in the 24-hour news cycle era combined with social media, that we are watching an impeachment process move forward in this way. Because everything can become, if you are not careful, so desensitized, like there's so much happening all the time and felt like for the last three years, it's been nonstop. This can begin to feel like another thing that is kind of wild, but like not so wild that you are kind of shocked. But I mean, it, it is important to remember that like in this way, this has never happened in this country.
4: We cannot forget that this is not normal and we can never let this become normal. Period. End of sentence. And now the news.
3: Hey, it's Sam. And for my news today, I want to talk about district attorneys. In particular, a new study that's come out from the researcher Sam Kremoles, which is called The Effect of District Attorneys on Local Criminal Justice Outcomes. Now, this is the first nationwide study to quantify the impact of electing a district attorney of a particular political party or of a particular race that that has on incarceration rates. So, for example, what they're able to do is compile a database of of all district attorneys who represent districts that have 25,000 people or more in them. So this is a huge database. They're able to code for the race of the district attorney, uh, the political party of the district attorney, and what they're able to find when they look at what happens after a Republican district attorney gets elected. In the two years after a Republican district attorney gets elected, compared to electing a Democratic district attorney in a similar district, it's associated with an 18 to 21% increase in incarceration rates, having a Republican district attorney. Not only that, but they're able to show that not only do more people end up going to jail under a Republican district attorney, but they end up going to jail longer. And much of this change is associated with how Republican district attorneys deal with drug offenses. In particular, what they find is that the largest impacts on incarceration rates are explained by how Republican district attorneys seek harsher, more punitive sentences for drug offenses. Now, that's political party. So electing a Republican district attorney is a bad idea if you care about mass incarceration, which isn't really shocking, but it's interesting to know that it's an 18 to 21% increase that you can expect under those situations. But what they're also able to find is that when they look by race, they're able to find that electing a black or Latino district attorney is associated with a 10% reduction in incarceration rates and a 10% reduction in the amount of time served for folks who are incarcerated. And again, that, that much of that impact is explained by how black and brown district attorneys approach the issue of drugs, in particular seeking more lenient sentences, and as a result, having lower rates of incarceration over time. Now, their study was limited to the two-year period after each election. And so, you know, it it will be fascinating to see subsequent research look at the long-term effect on incarceration rates. Um, But what they're also able to find in these circumstances is that contrary to what you hear from Republicans and conservative media around, you know, fear-mongering, around crime increasing if a particular prosecutor gets elected or seeks a more lenient sentence in particular cases, what they're able to find in this study is that actually there's no impact on crime rates. Crime rates stay the same. Arrest rates actually stay the same because the police continue arresting the same number of people despite electing a new district attorney. But incarceration rates change and the length of time served changes by electing a new district attorney. So that's the aspect of the system that you can impact pretty substantially uh, by electing new and better district attorneys. So use this research. It is incredibly valuable. uh, In Organizing to elect different district attorneys, to elect more progressive district attorneys, folks like Chesa Budin, who just won in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, running on a platform of reform, running on a platform of seeking alternatives to incarceration, decriminalizing sex work, and holding the police accountable. And of course, we've seen a whole number of district attorneys recently win election that have run on these types of platforms, platforms that are more progressive. Folks like Artemis Ayala uh, in Orange County, Florida, folks like Kim Fox in Cook County. So this is one of many strategies that will be needed to end mass incarceration, uh, but it is a strategy that can have a substantial impact on that goal. So get out there, use the research, get organized, and make impact.
5: And for my news, I want to talk about something that also shouldn't be normal, but that is becoming increasingly normal, and that is air pollution. After decades of progress and legislation like the Clean Air Act Air quality in the United States has started to decline over the past few years, according to data provided this past summer by the Environmental Protection Agency. The agency recorded 15% more days with unhealthy air in the country in 2018 and 2017 as compared to the average from 2013 to 2016. Uh, The reasons for the recent decline in air quality remain kind of unclear, uh, the agency says, but may be related to the number of wildfires, warming climate, increasing human consumption patterns driven by population growth and strong economies. But what isn't helping are the policies of Donald Trump and the uh, administration that he oversees, which is basically increasing the number of Americans who die prematurely from exposure to unhealthy air, something that lies at what will be the top of its legacy. And this was written about really well uh, recently in New York Magazine. And so, you know, no parts of the federal government during the Trump era have been more aggressive in rolling back the rules than the Environmental Protection Agency and the Interior Department, which between them regulate much of the intersection between the environment and the economy together their rule changes have touched nearly every aspect of environmental protection including air pollution caused by power plants and the oil and gas industry water pollution caused by coal mines and toxic chemicals and pesticides used by farmers across the country specifically trump's epa has prepared a draft proposal that would bar it from considering the conclusions of any academic study that relies on confidential medical records the official rationale for this policy is that such studies cannot be independently verified But without access to private medical records undergirding a given finding, EPA agents can't double check the validity of a researcher's raw data but this is a standard that virtually no peer review committee or scientific journal insists upon for the simple reason that private medical records are basically indispensable for the simple reason that private medical records are basically indispensable tools for documenting public health outcomes and assurances of confidentiality are often indispensable for securing private medical records um, so the new rules most important component is that it can be applied retroactively which is to say it can be invoked to block the renewal of existing environmental regulations that were enacted on the basis of studies involving these private medical records. Uh, And that would encompass a lot of regulation. And to get a sense of why this is so bad, like air pollution turns out to be much worse for human health than pretty much anyone expected when the Clean Air Act was first established. The longer scientists have studied the issue, the more harms they've identified. Human bodies simply have not evolved to process the kinds of particular matter That coal and chemical companies are spewing and have continued to spew. Earlier this year, a study published in the Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences estimated that more than 100,000 Americans die from illness caused by exposure to air pollution each year. 100,000. Since taking office, the president has, among other things, restored Dow Chemical's freedom to sell an insecticide that scientists say causes neural damage in small children, defended the liberty of Texas coal plants to spew deadly amounts of sulfur dioxide into the skies above the Houston suburbs, and fought for the right of coal plants to dump mining waste into the streams. And so part of what makes this especially egregious is that it is most likely to impact children whose bodies and lungs haven't fully developed and who are at higher risk of uh, experiencing the poor health outcomes that come from this air pollution and these other types of pollution.
4: You know, I knew that it was bad. I will be honest in saying that until reading this, I didn't know it was this bad. In particular, about how much harm is being done retroactively. To the point that you've made, there were policies created through the EPA that were based on public health research, based on just how bad air pollution is for human life. And that in particular, those are a lot of the rules and the regulations that are being undone retroactively. And I think for so many of us, we looked at the risk of this administration about what it could do now and for the future – And didn't even consider how many things could be undone from the past, how many things are necessary, how many things, frankly, we take for granted because they've been true for most of, if not all of our lifetimes, and yet here we are in a place where those things are being quietly undone, often without us even knowing. It is also, I think, a political opportunity, in the words of old-school politicians who will tell you never to waste a crisis. What is happening to the world is absolutely a crisis, when we are talking about air pollution, climate Climate, the destruction of the environment over and over and over again. And we know that it disproportionately impacts marginalized people. But what we also know is that this message doesn't necessarily reach all of the people that we need it to reach, depending on who the messenger is and exactly how they've crafted the message. It is wild to me to watch the right go after people like Greta Thunberg and environmental activists of all backgrounds in the same way that they've gone after young people who are pushing for gun control. These young people are literally saying, I want to live, and there are adults on the right who deem them evil for saying that. So I've always found that fascinating, and I don't understand why those are not the most effective messengers in this work, but it is to say that in addition to the conversations that they are leading, in addition to conversations around the Green New Deal and other things that are coming from... You know what folks on the right might deem stereotypically lefty or progressive spaces. If these moves from the EPA are this unpopular across political ideologies, then there's an opportunity for us to add a third leg to this stool of uh, the conversation on the climate crisis and help bring other people uh, into an understanding of just how dangerous this administration is for our environment, and that is affecting kids in New York City as badly as it is affecting kids in Flint as badly as it's affecting farm towns in rural america and that is a conversation worth having
1: don't go anywhere more pot save the people's coming
6: pot save the people is brought to you by factor warmer sunnier days are calling fuel up for them with factors no prep no mess meals meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto factors fresh never frozen meals Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the factor meals and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in the microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not.
1: atlp.com slash people guys it's been a rough year it's gonna get rougher and you deserve a
0: little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst
4: So for my news I want to have a conversation about integration particularly in New York City. As we've discussed on this podcast before, New York City is the largest school district in the country by far. It boasts 1 million students across the boroughs. It is also the country's most segregated school district, which is a fact that continues to surprise a lot of people given that it is way above the Mason-Dixon line and that New York City is one of if not the most diverse cities in the entire country, but just because there is a diversity of people does not mean that it is truly a melting pot and no place is that truer than new york city public schools so as you can imagine there have been a lot of on again off again attempts to desegregate and integrate new york city schools those words mean two different things but we'll come back to that later So this conversation has been in the news quite a bit lately. We talked previously about the incoming freshman class of Stuyvesant High School, Stuyvesant High School being one of the most competitive high schools in the entire city. Out of 895 entering freshmen, only seven of them, not 7%, but seven of them were black this year, which is actually down from some previous years. So this has been at the forefront of a lot of conversations on education in the area. A great number of students in particular have been taking this fight on themselves. Organizations like Integrate NYC and others have been led by young people leading the fight to say, we want to not only make sure that our schools are integrated, but we want to make sure that young people of color, poor young people, people coming from marginalized circumstances, and English language learners actually have access to a quality education at the same rates as everyone else, and that this system is truly equitable. Because we have to remember that integration was never just about sitting black kids and white kids next to each other. It was always and is still about equitable access to a quality education and the resources therein. And so one of the latest efforts to integrate schools in New York City has actually focused on New York City middle schools, mostly in Brooklyn and a few in Manhattan. There's essentially been a lottery created where a proportion of students enter that lottery and are sent to particular schools. Within that lottery, there is an additional weight given to students who represent marginalized and disenfranchised backgrounds, so children in low-income circumstances. English language learners, children of color. They essentially get more points in that lottery to attend the more highly selective schools Um, and the schools that, because of their individual rules and regulations for admissions, had become highly selective and highly sought after by more white, wealthy, and affluent families. So, in an attempt to integrate those schools, they've been putting more marginalized students in those schools. And what that also means, though, is that when students who come from more affluent or white backgrounds enter the lottery, that they are then also sent to schools that boast majority students of color. As you can imagine, because this is going to directly shift school patterns for marginalized students as well for affluent students, that there's a lot of pushback, in particular from affluent families. This is reflective of the kind of pushback that New York City saw in the 60s. There was a march from an organization of white mothers that call themselves parents and taxpayers across the Brooklyn Bridge in 1964 to protest integration by busing in New York City. So this is not a new phenomenon. And the pushback that New York City is seeing is not a new phenomenon either. But most certainly, this is a conversation worth having, not just to talk about what's wrong with the fact that schools are still so segregated, but actually how to get after this. And there are so many different ways that New York City has tried. Some would call some of the previous trials failures. But I wanted to bring this up because we talk about the importance of equitable access to a quality education all the time on this podcast, but the how is particularly difficult. And we know that the pushback will come when it continues to create discomfort for affluent families.
5: I think it's a really important conversation because it takes notions of equity out of the abstract and moves them into the concrete. For example, there's a famous study from sociologists who took the same resumes and they sent the resumes out and they were the exact same resumes, but they had different names at the top. You know, so one was Timmy and one was Jamal. Let's say those are their names. So one sounded like a stereotypical white name and a stereotypical black name. Uh, What they found was that although Timmy and Jamal had the same exact resume and credentials, Timmy had a 50% greater chance of getting a call back for an initial interview than Jamal did. So, if you tell Timmy that, Timmy's like, oh, this is not okay. This is ridiculous. This is unacceptable. Like, racism should not manifest itself in that way. And then you're like, cool, Timmy. Glad you're about that life. Glad you're with it. So, in order to build, the type of world that is more equitable that is going to necessitate that you have a 25% less likely chance of getting the job than you previously did. And then Timmy's like, "Oh no, like that's not okay. That's discrimination. That's reverse racism. You're punishing me." And so I use that example just because if you've always felt privileged your entire life when someone tries to create a more equitable landscape in which you're a part of, it can feel like somebody's taking something away from you that you inherently deserve. And I think that schools are another example, but they're a trickier example because they have to do with our kids. And I have two kids and they will be going to elementary school and I'll be lying if I told you that these are like easy things to reckon with. I think some people can tell you like, oh, do this and do this and let's integrate the schools and let's do that. It is okay I think to say like, ooh, it is hard to come to terms with, and also believe that it is the right thing to do, right? And I think Nicole Hannah Jones has written about this extensively, and has a really uh, moving piece that she wrote a couple years ago about the decision to send her own daughter, despite being a New York Times magazine writer, to a low income school in their neighborhood in Brooklyn that might not necessarily have some of the resources that many of the other schools she could probably afford to send her child have. And part of what she talks about is that her presence in that school fundamentally changes the dynamic of the social capital that children in that school are afforded and have access to, right? Like having a New York Times staff writer in that school changes the dynamics of what people believe they can and can't do. It changes types of access that other students have to people in those positions. Like she might be able to like bring somebody in for an internship, bring them to the New York Times, like field trips. And I mean, part of it is the concrete resources that become more evenly distributed. And part of it is also the sort of soft social capital that is also redistributed and spread more equitably when you have people from a range of socioeconomic backgrounds all coming to different schools and providing networks and opportunities for young people who might not otherwise have those things to have access to them. And this is something my wife and I have talked a lot about and thought a lot about. And people can say, like, don't play politics with your kids. You know, your kids aren't political tools. But I think that's the wrong framing, right? Like every decision we make is reflective of our politics and our kids are a part of our lives. I would never suggest that someone should send their child to a place where their child is in danger. But I do think we have to think about a sort of more holistic, robust commitment to societies and communities, rather than saying like, I'm going to do the best thing for my kid because my kid deserves this. And when you say my kid deserves this, what are you implicitly saying about what other kids do or do not deserve? These are hard things to think about. I'd recommend reading Nicole Hannah-Jones' piece. She also has a great This American Life series of episodes that tackle these things. And I'm glad that we're talking about it.
1: You know, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was the warm poverty. So, 1964, War and Poverty, all these programs emerged. But one of the biggest programs that impacted public education significantly was Head Start. And uh, Head Start is early childhood learning, mostly in low-income, under-resourced communities all across the country. I say mostly only because New York is sort of an anomaly right now because the way that New York City did pre-K for all Was essentially using Head Start centers. So in New York City, not every pre K student is in a New York City public school. There's a set of students who are actually in Head Start programs. So that is sort of a different situation than is in almost every other city in the country, but Head Start's everywhere. Uh, And there's a really interesting study that Brookings did on Head Start not too long ago. And it talks about the positive effects of Head Start. So you think about the importance of early childhood. People have talked about it. There's never been a program to allow people to access Head Start. You know in most cities, and Clint, you probably are going through this soon, is that the cost of daycare, like the cost of all these programs before public school is prohibitive for a lot of families, and the cost of quality programming is super prohibitive for a lot of families, or if not prohibitive, it literally is like a paycheck, and Head Start cuts through that. But what's really cool about Head Start is that the data actually shows that when we talk about poverty and you think about the conversation about integration, we're so clearly focused on how do we make sure that kids experience outcomes that are either close to some standard we set or at least mimic each other's. Uh, And what's cool about Head Start is that almost all the data we have is really positive in ways that both people expect and ways that people don't expect. So what Brookings found is that there's a positive impact on high school graduation rate, It's also a positive impact on a student's chances of pursuing and completing higher education. For Hispanic participants, there's about a 15 percentage completion around post-secondary credentials, which is sort of interesting. But what I thought was particularly interesting is that they've also found a way to measure the investment that parents make in children. I thought that was sort of interesting. So Brookings found that Head Start actually causes participants to invest more in their own children years after the participation in the program. So most of the studies before Brookings did this focused on parental involvement during Head Start, but they actually figured out a way to measure parental involvement after Head Start, and they actually found out that it increases participation long haul. And this was a reminder about the importance of a program like Head Start when we think about long-term academic success. The reason I bring this up in the conversation about integration is that I think too often we think about integration as simply about sort of making sure communities coexist with each other. And that is the access conversation. But we don't think about the quality conversation. And you give people a ton of access in low quality, it doesn't really matter. And I think Head Start is like a really interesting way to think about how you create access and quality at the youngest ages. The second thing is that, Brittany, the article that you show has a map by race of middle schools in New York City. And what I thought was so fascinating that I completely didn't expect is that there is no big community of Black people. There's like a huge Hispanic Latino community, a ton of white communities, and then there's like that little dot around Red Hook And then no other community of Black people that is actually like a concentrated area. And I thought that was fascinating. Like, that was not what I expected at all when I looked at the data. People talk about, and, you know, Brittany, you've talked about this before, but the importance of community is that, like, even in these moments, and that article sort of highlights what happens when a kid of color goes to school where they're the only person. That map really was shocking to me. My news is rooted in this article called The Psychology of Inequality. It is rooted in... One researcher, Keith Payne, and his research and... A book that he recently published. It's called The Broken Ladder, How Inequality Affects the Way We Think, Live, and Die. We should have him on the podcast. Keith, if you're listening, um, you're invited. But what he sort of frames at the beginning is like the feeling of inequality has an impact, too. And again, just to preface before I say any of this, is that uh, we never want to participate in the logic that says that because people are poor, they make risky decisions, and those risky decisions are the reason they're poor in the first place. We know that inequality across the country is not distributed because of the choices that people made, but because of the choices that were made about people. And that is the framing that we think about all this stuff. What I thought was interesting were some of the studies that uh, he notes. So there's one study of British civil servants where it showed that where people rank themselves in terms of status was a better predictor of their health than their education level or their actual income. I thought that was really interesting. There was also this study about people's attitudes towards race linked to their experience of deprivation. So he cites this work done by a psychologist at NYU who offered participants $10 for them to play an online game. Some of the subjects were told that if they'd been more fortunate, they would have received $100. All the subjects are white, and they were shown pairs of faces and asked which looked most black. All the images were composites that had been sort of manipulated in some way. And the subjects in the unfortunate group, on average, chose images that were darker than those in the control group. And one of his findings is that like feeling disadvantaged actually magnifies people's perceptions of racial differences, which I thought was really interesting in its own way. And then the last one I wanted to talk about was, and this is the one that made me bring this, is that uh, they did this study that had people rank themselves on something called the Normative Discretionary Income Index, which they made up. And what was interesting is that it didn't matter what their finances actually looked like. Some of the participants were led to believe that they had more discretionary income than their peers, and some were led to believe the opposite. And then they were given $20 and the choice to either take the money or gamble it on a computer card game. What was interesting is that the people who believe that they rank low on the scale were much more likely to risk the money on the card game. And what he said is that feeling poor made people willing to roll the dice. And this is backed up by like a host of literature that sort of says rich people don't want to talk about being rich. They sort of don't want to talk about the advantages. They don't want the feeling, all those things. But that the feeling of actually being stripped of resources has a huge impact on the way people move through the world. And that is interesting for a host of reasons. One, because it reminds us that we can actually do things to shape the way people feel and think about the world, regardless of the actual resources they have, which is like an interesting sort of social study. The second, though, is that we have to take seriously the way poverty affects the way that people move through society, and that that actually has a whole different impact that I think often goes unmeasured. And the third is that this reminded me that there are a lot of studies out there that never make it to activists or people who make policy. And we should think a little more critically about the existing body of research and how we can use it to inform behaviors. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. Listen, we know everyone is making a podcast now, so thanks for listening to us. We also want to ask you to make a little more room in your lineup for We Live Here from St. Louis Public Radio and PRX.
4: When the Ferguson uprising revealed St. Louis's racial fault lines to the entire world, the producers for We Live Here started digging in. The show has spent five years shedding light on the mechanisms of systemic racism. It's a model for how local media, in my hometown no less, can sustain conversations about racial equity.
1: They've got new episodes coming out that uncover the stories and costs behind the fractured governmental systems that define the St. Louis region, one of the most segregated places in America.
4: And what they find says lots about how race and power work in towns across the country. So subscribe to We Live Here Today, anywhere you get your podcasts.
1: We've been supporting Stacey Abrams' program Fair Fight to battle voter suppression in battleground states. And we love Stacey Abrams. Last month, we raised a million dollars across all the cricket media shows, and the results are already proving their effectiveness.
4: In Kentucky, Fair Fight worked with the Kentucky Democratic Party to prevent the state from moving 175,000 names to the inactive voter list. After last week's election, Democrat Andy Beshear is the apparent governor-elect, beating Republican Governor Matt Bevan by just 5,086 votes. You all, this is not a game.
1: Since launching this summer, Fair has put teams on the ground in Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. They are currently hiring in Arizona, New Hampshire, Texas, and North Carolina. Next, they're planning to get teams in Iowa, Alabama, South Carolina, Minnesota, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Maine.
4: Important places. Thanks to all of you who helped reach our $1 million goal last month. This is the last push of 2019. So if you haven't pitched in yet or you know people who would want to help, let's finish out 2019 strong by hitting that $2 million goal.
1: Go to votesaveamerica.com slash fair fight to chip in what you can. The 2020 win may come down to a razor thin number of votes and we will need every single one. And now, my conversation with Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, the second largest teachers union in America. Randy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People.
2: Hey, of the things I do in life, this is probably one of the coolest things I've ever done, so thank you.
1: A lot of people know that I used to teach, but a lot of people don't know that you were my union president when I was a chapter leader here at my school in New York City.
2: Remind me of the school you were at.
1: I was at Frederick Douglass Academy 8 in uh, East New York, Brooklyn, in Start City.
2: Oh, wow. So that job, which is a chapter leader, which is kind of like the union rep at the school, as you're also teaching full-time, I would say is one of the hardest jobs in life. Because you are the front line of a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. And, you know, how you help people get the support and the dignity that they need to teach kids, that's a lot of what a chapter leader does. So thank you for doing that job.
1: It was a great training ground, too, for what processes look like, what a union contract looks like at the school level, like in practice, not just in theory. Uh, But I have a lot of questions today, and and I hope that you can help us uh, just think better about unions, about teachers. I want to start with the Janus decision, which came down from the Supreme Court. It seems like the decision might have had a big impact on uh, teachers' unions and a host of public sector uh, organizing. Can you help us understand the decision better for people who know nothing about it? And then talk to us about like what effect it had if at all on the teachers' unions
2: so the spoiler alert on that case was that it was intended as a way of defunding and destabilizing unions in the public sector, but it didn't it actually has now had the opposite effect, so that's kind of like it's not the end of the story, but it's the I always think about where we are is you know, you're always fighting, you're always movement building. So say we are in the fourth inning of the aftermath of the Janus case. And so what the Janus case was about is that, you know, years and years ago, in exchange for creating collective bargaining in the public sector, there was an obligation of public sector unions to represent everyone. And as part of that obligation to represent everyone— There was something called a fair share fee. Sometimes it's called an agency fee. Sometimes it's called fair share fee. But you didn't have to join the union, but you would pay a fair share for that representation. In about 40 years ago, there was a case coming out of Detroit that said, wait a second, I don't actually agree with some of what the union says politically. So do I have to pay for that as well? And in that case called Abood, the court said the representation that you get in collective bargaining, even if you don't want to join the union, that's what you pay for, but you don't have to pay for any of the political work that the union does. And there was that line between political and collective bargaining, which frankly, in the long run, I'm not all that sure that there is that line, but there was that line. And that was a unanimously decided case by both the liberals and the conservatives on the Supreme Court, I think it was 40 years ago. The moment that um, Gorsuch was appointed to the court, the right wing moved the, and I say the right wing because it wasn't the individual who moved the case. It was the people who hate unions and want to undermine them and want to undermine people's power. And so they moved this case, and by a 5-4 vote, which we totally expected we lost the case and they said that this above decision that was unanimously decided 50 years ago was wrong and that all of this speech is political and therefore people should not only have to not join which of course is everybody's right but even pay for the representation so it became one that unlike if you remember the bar You have an obligation to pay your bar fees as part and parcel of that representation. If you are at a university, you may have those kind of fees, student fees, to pay for that. But they said because these are public sector unions, the First Amendment is implicated, and they made that decision. Now, dissent said this was an abrogation of the First Amendment, and this is ridiculous. And, you know, so, but we lost the case, even though. It really is a contract case, not a First Amendment case that essentially says, if you get services from somebody, you pay a fair share for those services. But this is what has happened. People are sticking with the unions. Our union lost that day 85,000 people. And we were very, very careful that agency fee payers, that the case said that they no longer pay a fair share we made sure that they got their money back prospectively. They were not on our rolls, 85,000 people that one day. Over the course of last year, over the course of the last 18 months, we've actually organized over 100,000 people. And what you're seeing is that people who were in different locals, even if they say, you know, I hate what Randy has done about X or Y or Z, but they get a sense that together... We can actually advocate for or create a community in a way that people have no power individually. And so what we're seeing, take New York, for example, this year, three people dropped the union. We're seeing 90% of new people join. But, you know, this is something that I think we had to kind of confront, that it actually changed our leaders' behavior in terms of going back to basics and really talking with people, and not being so hierarchical, and not being so afraid of the debate. And I think that in some ways, it was the opposite of what's going on in the country, where everything's so polarized. Here, what has happened is that in local after local all across the country, and we have about 3,500, people started talking with each other, and started thinking about, well, what Are the reasons why people are in unions? And what can we do together? And at the same time as this case was being debated at the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the West Virginia strike happened, and then the Arizona strike, and the Oklahoma strike. And people then said, oh, well, you need this kind of collective action if you're a working person to actually move an agenda. And in some ways, it had the activism of the Black Lives Matter movement, of the United We Dream movement, of the women's marches kind of wedded or married to the infrastructure that we had created of unionism. And so you had both movement building and mobilization with infrastructure around issues that people really care about. So that's why I say, spoiler alert, it's actually made us better I disagree with the ruling, you know, this is not the way, that the First Amendment was about creating more rights for people. It was not intended to try to disable power from people. But having said that, the Supreme Court did what the Supreme Court did, and we are dealing with it, but we have changed to meet the moment.
1: I want to ask too, uh, you talk about the strikes that have happened across the country in the past couple of years. Obviously, we all just watched Chicago, you involved in a different way, not just as somebody watching, but as a union president at the national level. One of the things I've always sort of wondered, and as you know, I used to teach, and I was a chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore and led human capital work in Minneapolis, is that I look at the demands from the union, and I look at the agreement, the tentative agreement that comes out. And this has happened across the country. And people say that we should have more social workers and nurses, things that there doesn't seem to be a disagreement about that in theory, and there shouldn't be. But as somebody who had to hire teachers in major urban school districts, I can see an agreement in a place like Chicago to put a nurse in every school or a social worker in every school, and I know that like the nuts and bolts is that it's going to be really hard for a district as big as Chicago to just hire that many people. I think about in Baltimore, we had 150 schools, and I couldn't find 150 nurses for every school, so we did a lot of creative things to make sure our kids had services. But there really was a shortage of personnel. There just weren't as many people out there as people seem to believe. So I'm always trying to figure out, like, what do we do, Randy, when there are legitimate demands, but there's not like Teacher Island or Nurse Island out there just waiting to get hired?
2: So let me split this up, because those of us who have actually tried to make things work, let's split those issues up from will and way. So let me talk about will first and then way. Because, you know, you and I have done a lot of work in terms of, you know, how to get it done, how to make things happen. But what has happened, I think, and let me look at it over the last 20 years, because I would say I can't speak for every single union. But if you actually look at even the GM strike this year and what we did in Lordstown as a run-up to the GM strike, because that's our local you look at what happened with the stop-and-shop strike of stop-and-shop workers in the Northeast, you look at what happened with the Unite Here strike of a Marriott Hotels, and you look at the strikes that teachers have done, you see a different kind of communication. It's not a public relations blitz. It is that people deeply understand our members, not just the leaders, the members deeply understand that they are connecting the struggle that they are making, that we are making together, with the bigger struggle of economic and political life in America. And so if you are talking about, for example, 45% of kids in America suffer from trauma or anxiety, that 50% of the kids in America in our public schools are poor, that the majority of the kids in American public schools are kids of color. And I can go on and on in terms of obesity, diabetes, asthma, and lots of other issues. So what teachers are starting to say is, wait a second, our first job now is not to use poverty as an excuse, but to actually see How do we create a welcoming and safe environment for the kids that we teach? And how do we do this in a way so that it gives us a chance to meet kids' needs where they are so that we can do instruction? So it's not blamey anymore. It is about how do we do this? So you're seeing the will on the part of teacher unions with allies basically saying, let's just try – and make schools centers of community and wrap services around. And I suspect that the more we can do this, the more you're going to see over the course of the next few years more nurses coming out of nursing schools who will then be school nurses. Like when you start it, like you did in Baltimore, it's always really hard to be first at it. But once people then start seeing that there is not only a need, there is a demand, then what's going to happen is that we're going to start being able to get school nurses again, which have been a huge shortage. And these issues are issues all throughout. So, for example, in Chicago, it is... Over the course of the contract, that every school will have a nurse. In Boston, it was over the course of the contract. But what's happening is if people don't see themselves in fiefdoms anymore or little silos or little tribes and then start working with the medical schools and the nursing schools or the universities, like, you know, frankly, look at what is in Baltimore. Shouldn't there be the kind of work in Maryland to try to create pipelines, not only for diversifying our teaching force, but pipelines to ensure that we have the nurses that we need in schools, the social workers that we need, the guidance counselors. And I think if people actually then saw, oh, these are reliable jobs, they're not going to go bye-bye in the next recession. They're actually now part and parcel of a teacher union contract. So there's some predictability and stability there then people will opt to take them. But I think what the situation you were in, is like you were first to be first. And it's really hard to be first to be first. But the more we can do this, and the more people see, no, we're going to have nurses in all the schools. That's why I was so glad to see Elizabeth Warren's proposal for 25,000 community schools. Now, people, that's an eye-popping number. But at the end of the day, The more we can actually create a safe, welcoming environment for children and schools once again become the kind of neighborhood school centers of community, centers of where we build community, including the kind of services that parents and families need, I think the more you're going to see that the demand is met by supply.
1: That makes sense to me, and I'm happy you brought up Warren's plan. I want to talk about community schools in a second. I'd love to know your thoughts about how we think about credentials or certification, or, and I say because, you know, people can come to the profession a host of ways, and it's not clear that there is one best way to become a teacher. And I think about when I led staffing in Minneapolis, is that there were some university partners that were incredible, that the people they put in our classrooms were literally some of the best teachers we ever had. And on the flip side, there were some partners who, you know, they went through a four-year degree in elementary and, like, couldn't teach a kid how to read. They literally just didn't know anything about literacy. And we really struggled uh, trying to tease out, like, what credentials look like. Or in Baltimore, it was, you know, to get somebody certified to be the mechanic teacher at one of the big high schools was, like, mind-blowing. And, like, this person was a, an incredible mechanic. they have been a mechanic for 20 years, but to jump through the hoops to get Uh, hired was actually really hard and those sort of things. So what, what flexibility do you see or what opening or can we sort of push universities or pipeline programs like the fellows or whoever? Like, what do we do there?
2: So, you know, when Harold Levy, who has, you know, recently died, was the chancellor of the New York City Public Schools, he and I worked out the fellows program together. I am a big believer in trying things, but I'm also... I get really pissed off when people then weaponize what one tries. So, you know, what was Teach for America? It was an alternative certification program. But frankly, we had so many alternative certification programs in New York City, we used to tease about because the conditions were tough. And you see this around the country. Why did you have alternative certification programs? Because teaching was a shortage. And so you wanted to bring people in and not do it by basically what we used to say was the breath test, which is, you know, when somebody was breathing and you could bring them in as a substitute. That's really, really, really terrible for kids, and that's part of the reason that the alternative certification programs grew up. But, you know, as you and I both know, there's a big, huge difference in quality across the spectrum. And part of what we need to do in terms of the schools and the universities that still have teaching or licensing programs, we need to help ensure that they are actually preparing teachers for today and tomorrow. So there's lots of good and bad about all the different ways of getting into teaching. But I want to actually then take a step back and say, but think about it. There's not another profession. Like, I could actually really dump all over my law classes and what I learned in law school. And like my clinic and some of my classes were absolutely phenomenal, but some of them were like, how were they going to actually help me be a labor lawyer or how did they really help? And so I would actually say that people could probably dump all over almost every professional training program and find fault with almost every one of them. But at the end of the day, it is only the teaching profession that we think should have an alternative path as the main way of getting in there as opposed to a professional path. And that's what I really am flummoxed by. If there's a shortage, one understands, one has to meet the shortage. But we should actually have a set of knowledge and skills, including clinical skills, and including cultural focus that teachers have to go through and that they have to actually prove that they have these skills just like lawyers have to prove they have these skills just like doctors have to prove they have these skills and frankly I think the thing that's really really missing is not the you know the coursework but the clinical work so the flexner commission you know 100 years ago for medicine fundamentally changed the way people got into medicine and were prepared on day one. And I think that what we don't do is we do not do enough residencies and real clinical training so that teachers, when they actually walk into a classroom by themselves, feel the confidence that they know what they're doing.
1: I agree with you on that. I think my only push would be that I'm not sure that professional and alternative are actually such there's such a wide chasm between the two that I think what you've seen and what I've seen, you know, especially being around for the beginning of the fellows program is that there are a huge set of people who go through a four year program and they come out incredible, right? There's another set that come out and they are like not ready on the first day. That <laughs> the first day is like, you know, real hard for them. And alternatively, there are people who go through accelerated programs who come out ready too, right? Who come out just as ready as anybody else. So when I think about this, it is not even to say that one version is better, but I do think we're at a moment that we should all probably step back and like reflect on what is the best way to prepare teachers. And it doesn't seem like a four-year degree is the only way. And it doesn't seem like what we call alternative programs are like the only or best way either. There probably is something in the middle.
2: I totally agree with you. I think that this debate has gotten so polarized But it's because it's gotten weaponized. And I would actually say that's the same thing that's happened in terms of charters. That this notion of, oh, no, this is better. Oh, no, this is better. Oh, no, 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 this is better. When there's such complications and complexities about it, I just would say that Part of what we've never grappled with is that teaching is actually a profession. You are actually a physician of the mind. And there's a lot that goes into teaching that we don't actually help train teachers for before day one, because we don't actually understand that it should be a lot more expensive to teach teachers how to be teachers than we account for. But I would also say that historically, think about what the normal colleges were and think about how so many of the HBCUs started. And I think we have to actually spend more time investing in these kind of historical colleges that dot the country, and that are really important, not just for legacy reasons, are really important for communal reasons, and for building up community. And so I think you're right that you need to actually take a step back and look at everything. But without the weaponization, without saying, oh, no, I'm better than you. Oh, no, my program is better than yours. And look at what works. But thinking about it as how do you make teaching the kind of profession that it ought to be? My mother went to Teachers College at Columbia for her master's degree And I remember her always being proud of the fact that she had that degree from teacher's college. It meant something. It was part of her kind of ethos and her seeing herself as being in the profession of teaching.
1: Uh, I want to ask, so you brought up Warren's plan. One of the things that Warren calls for is the end of high stakes testing. Uh, One of the things that you've talked about repeatedly is the different ways that we can Assess what kids are learning. Both of those sentiments make sense to me. I'm trying to figure out, and you know this, is that one of the things that testing, high stakes or not, one of the things that it did is that it helped us understand subgroup data in a way that we just didn't before. We suddenly could talk about the gap in achievement between races or communities or geography. Like we could do all those things because we had robust data. And there's a fear that the absence of testing will only benefit privileged white kids and will disadvantage a host of kids of color. So, what's the middle, or like, how do we how do we not stress kids out and have these tests that are one day tests that have a huge impact on everything or in schools teaching to the test, while also not foregoing any measure of success or achievement?
2: I think what's important in terms of what she says and what others of us who have talked about it, and when I say she, I mean Elizabeth Warren is the adjective before tests. The adjective of high stakes is what is the issue. I don't know a teacher who doesn't use testing in their classrooms to try to figure out, you know, where kids are. It is one of the tools of our trade. And so the issue here is that the test became the instruction. You know, I would actually take a step back and say, we don't actually have... I don't know if we ever had it, but we don't actually have a common definition of what is the purposes of education and what constitutes success. I would say it is to prepare kids for life, career, and college. That democratic citizenship is really, really important. All that kind of got squeezed out during the you know, fixation on math and English tests in from No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top. I'm sure nobody intended it to be that way, maybe with the exception of a couple of people who thought that they could actually reduce everything um, to an algorithm or to a test score. But we need the data. And I agree with all of the people within the civil rights movement that says, we can't lose the data. Look what has happened in terms of IDEA. Why did we have the Individuals with Disabilities Act initially? It was to stop people from undermining kids with special needs. And so data is really important. But the question becomes, is data the end or is data a means to the end? Is data a measuring stick? Is data a transparency point? Is data about improving instruction? Or is data a sanctioning device? And I think what has happened is that when one piece of data became the basis for closing schools, raiding teachers, leaving kids behind, that's when it got wrongly used and it got weaponized. And it actually, frankly, hurt the kids that we were trying to help the most because, you know, the kids in Scarsdale or the kids in um, other high wealth districts, they would have scored highly you know, as they did in so many different ways. What we saw was such churn in terms of neighborhood public schools and lots of things closing that you have neighborhoods dotted throughout the country, particularly in urban settings, that don't have a neighborhood public school anymore, that don't have the infrastructure that we need to actually do community building and create that kind of focus On school as community, school as having AP courses, school as having enrichment, school as having music and art and the kind of things that kids want to go to school. School, like the performance consortium courses or schools, schools where, you know, kids can master things. Schools like the school I taught at. I taught at Clara Barton High School. It was a CTE school in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. My kids used to routinely do the We the People competition and become debaters and beat other schools in the state and in the nation in terms of these debate teams. That's mastery. And so I would actually argue, as I did this week at a New York State Regents event in Long Island, where they're looking at what the Regents requirements should be, I actually argued that my kids in that AP government course because of doing that kind of debating over the Constitution, looking at things from different sides, understanding the context of the Bill of Rights, I would say that they were far better in social studies than any course that I taught in terms of U.S. history, leading to people taking the uh, social studies regions.
1: Randy, this has been a pleasure and honor, and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon.
2: Thank you for everything that you do. I really, really appreciate you. And the country should really appreciate you. So thank you.
1: Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week.